If you walk into most classrooms in the United States, you often see a statement like the students will be able to, and then something after that, some kind of objective, like the students will be able to sit quietly for eight hours straight without moving. Or more progressive educators might ask it in the form of a question like, how might the students sit in their seats quietly without moving for eight hours? Well, this is something that is often focused on by administrators, like you'll lose five points as an educator if you don't have it stated on the board. One might ask, well, why do we even actually have those objectives to begin with? Or how might we reconsider or rethink objectives in classrooms context? Today's episode of the CSK8 podcast is going to unpack a chapter titled Educational Aims, Objectives, and Other Aspirations, and this is by Elliot Eisner. And it's going to question our focus on and use of objectives in the classroom context. In fact, it's actually going to provide three different ways that you might be able to reconsider these types of objectives. So the first one is kind of unpacking, well, what are these behavioral objectives? The next one talks about problem-based objectives. And the third one kind of reframes objectives into expressive outcomes. And if you're curious, so who am I? My name is Jared O'Leary, and this is the CSK8 podcast. I have a background in all grades, kindergarten through doctoral student in music education and computer science education context. So I'm going to relate this chapter into a wide variety of different contexts. All right, so the chapter begins with Eisner talking about well, what exactly are objectives. So here's a quote from page 93, quote, objectives are the specific goals that one hopes to achieve through the educational program that is provided. In order for educational planning to be meaningful, not only must goals be formulated, they must also be formulated with precision and with clarity. To formulate them with precision and clarity, it is best not to use words that have reference that are difficult to observe. Words such as understanding, insight, appreciation, and interest refer to qualities that cannot be observed directly. They require one to make inferences about their existence through the observation of manifest behavior. Thus, useful objectives should be stated in behavioral terms or, in more current jargon, performance terms. When objectives are stated behaviorally, it is possible to have specific empirical reference to observe. Thus, one is in a position to know without ambiguity whether the behavioral objectives has been reached. An objective that seeks to help students appreciate the insights of great poetry needs to be recast into terms far more specific and precise. What would a student do to demonstrate that such appreciation has occurred? What behavior could he or she display? What task is he or she to perform? End quote. I don't know about you, but that kind of like reminds me a lot of the PD sessions that I'd go to on Wednesday afternoons and our early release days where they'd kind of talk about what is an objective? You probably learned this in your 101 course on education, but we're going to teach it to you again to make sure that you understand what it is. Which side note on that, I think it's hilarious when districts treat everybody the same. Like when I went back into the previous district that I was in, I had just finished my residency for my PhD in music education and they required me to go to the new teacher orientation for it was supposed to be a year long and it would teach you stuff like, well, what is an objective, blah, blah, blah. And every teacher had to go to it if you were a new teacher in that district. But fortunately, I was teaching a college class at the exact same time that this occurred. And I had already committed to that before I'd signed on for the district. So I went to the first and I think the last one and that was about it. I understand why districts have those kind of courses in place, but it kind of comes across as assuming teachers come in not knowing what they're talking about. Just because it's your first year in the district doesn't mean you haven't taught several years before or have many degrees in that subject area, but tangent over. Now Eisner goes on to describe how these objectives are no longer focused on what the teacher is going to do, but the behavior of the students. So what exactly will the student do? 
not only do you identify the behavior, but you also identify the content that students are going to engage with. And then finally, you need to include some kind of degree of competency that somebody is going to reach when completing the objective. So here's a quote from page 94, and this is actually Eisner quoting Robert Major, or Magger. Apologies for mispronouncing your name. Quote, an objective is an intent communicated by a statement describing a proposed change in a learner a statement of what the learner is to be like when he has successfully completed a learning experience. It is a description of a pattern of behavior, performance, we want the learner to be able to demonstrate. As Dr. Paul Whitmore once put it, the statement of objectives of a training program must denote measurable attributes observable in the graduate of the program, or otherwise it is impossible to determine whether or not the program is meeting the objectives. When clearly defined goals are lacking, it is impossible to evaluate a course or program efficiently. And there is no sound basis for selecting appropriate materials, content, or instructional methods. After all, the machinist does not select a tool until he knows what operation he intends to perform. Neither does a composer orchestrate a score until he knows what effects he wishes to achieve. Similarly, a builder does not select his materials or simply a schedule for construction until he has his blueprints, objectives, before him. Too often, however, one hears teachers arguing the relative merits of textbooks or other aids of the classroom versus the laboratory, without ever specifying just what goal the aid or method is to assist in achieving. I cannot emphasize too strongly the point that an instructor will function in a fog of his own making until he knows just what he wants his students to be able to do at the end of the instruction, end quote. And actually went over uh, from page 94 into the very top of page 95. Now, that is a really interesting quote, and I have so much to say and counter with that, but I'm going to just kind of keep my mouth shut, and we'll let Eisner do that for me. Now, this study of like behavioral objectives has roots in the American educational psychology, but there are two other traditions associated with this type of approach that Eisner discusses. One is industry and the other is military training. So here's how these objectives might be used in an automobile plant, like a facility that will kind of manufacture or assemble automobiles. So this is from page 95. Quote, a prototypical form is created for the cars to be assembled. This form is described both physically and mechanically for each model. Subsequently, a component analysis is made of the prototype. A task analysis follows that prescribes the steps to be taken in production and their sequence and production begins. The manager of the assembly line has the task of ensuring that all operations are performed in the order specified. The goal to be achieved is the creation of an isomorphic relationship between the original prototype and each car coming off the line. If these cars do not match, there is a callback, and the problem is identified and readjustments are made. An efficient and effective assembly line produces identical cars day after day that in every aspect match the model that was originally created, end quote. Now that might sound fine until you realize this is talking about children. Then Eisner goes on on page 96 to talk about how this relates to military. Now here's a quote from page 96, quote, when one has a training program, a program that intentionally attempts to help another acquire a known specific performance system to be used to achieve a known goal, the acquisition of known behavioral routines might be appropriate. Personal ingenuity and idiosyncratic behavior are discouraged both on the assembly line and in the boot camp. The armed forces justify such an approach on the basis that it is of paramount importance for soldiers to learn to follow orders. Prediction and control of troops are required in time of war. Industry employs such an approach because it is efficient. 
More cars can be produced in better fashion when systematic routinized procedures are followed, end quote. Now, when we start thinking of students and the education system as assembly lines and students as a product of that assembly line, I find some problems in that. And we're gonna kind of talk about that some more in this chapter, in this podcast episode. But Eisner provides some context and says that a lot of this shift in thinking had to do with pressures being put on superintendents at the time in the early 1900s and how we adopted a Taylor approach who was like an industrial management specialist or consultant who kind of talked about time management and efficiency and how you can optimize your assembly line to be able to produce more. And so this approach was applied into the educational system in the early and mid 1900s and has been kind of used to this day. I mean, I don't know about you, but I had administrators in like one of my districts who said, we cannot afford to fail. So only do the lessons that we know are going to work. Do not experiment with the lessons that you are teaching with any kind of projects. Do not experiment with how you are going to teach it, etc. Do not customize it for the students that you're working with. Just go with what is literally verbatim written out for every single one of the 50 plus elementary schools across the the district and assume it's going to work for every single student, which surprise, surprise, it did not work, especially when I went to one school that was an affluent school where it was predominantly white and had a golf course across the street from it. And then I went to another school that was not predominantly white where 95% of the students did not speak English as their first language. Surprise, the lessons didn't really work too well in both those contexts. But again, the assembly line approach is everybody's gonna have the same experience and come out with the same outcomes, regardless of how you come into this program and what kind of experiences you bring. So assessing prior understanding kind of doesn't really matter in this kind of an approach, which again is often used in most classes in North America that I've witnessed. So on page 97, Eisner quotes a superintendent who's talking about how this new approach focusing on time management and whatnot and making your classroom instruction super efficient and effective was kind of a smoke and mirrors to kind of help protect themselves of the criticisms that many superintendents were receiving. Quote, one may easily trace an analogy between these fundamentals of the science of industrial management and the organization of a public school system. For example, one, the state as employer must cooperate with the teacher as employee, for the latter does not always understand the science of education. Two, the state provides experts who supervise the teacher and suggests the processes that are most efficacious and economical. Three, the task system obtains in the school as well as in the shop each grade being a measured quantity of work to be accomplished in a given term. Four, every teacher who accomplishes the task receives a bonus, not in money, but in the form of a rating, which may have money value. Five, those who are unable to do the work are eliminated, either through the device of a temporary license or temporary employment. Six, the differential rate is applied to the teacher, quantity and quality of service being considered in the rating. Seven, the result ought to be a maximum output at a low relative cost, since every repeater costs as much as a new pupil. Eight, the teacher thus receives better wages, but only after demonstrated fitness for high position. Nine, hence we ought to have the most desirable combination of an educational system, relative cheapness of operation and high salaries, end quote. Now, if you listen to some of the episodes that talks about like Bourdieu, for example, episode 98, re-examining inequalities in computer science participation from a Bourdieu'sian sociological perspective, as well as intersections of cultural capital with Kimberly Scott, that's episode 124. Both of those kind of talk about how power and power dynamics can have an impact on what occurs in the classroom. Now, what's really interesting is that even though this is kind of adopts a corporate mentality is we don't have the ability like in many corporations to continue to earn higher wages so for myself 
I was capped at a very specific rate based off of just my degrees and how many years I had taught. I could receive a small bonus if the students performed well across the school, because again, I taught every single kid in the school. It wasn't just a specific class or grade level, but in a corporate context, if you're like a salesperson, you can keep receiving more and more commissions for the better you perform. So it's kind of convenient that that part of the corporate mentality has kind of been left out of the educational system, but that's a whole nother topic that we can discuss on another episode. Let's get back to talking about the problems with objectives. Here's an important quote from page 97 from Eisner. Quote, the society was viewed as the consumer of the school's products. The children were the raw material to be processed according to specifications laid down by the consumer. And the teachers were the workers who were to be overseen by supervisors. All of this was to take place under a superintendent, end quote. Now, to an untrained person who may have experienced education, that might sound fine. Like, yeah, that makes sense. It's just like an assembly line. But Eisner points out that the way steel reacts to pressure being applied to it is going to be very different than the way a student reacts to pressure being applied to them. The steel, you can usually predict if the machines are effectively tuned, that it's going to create the same exact outcome. But Eisner points out, quote, children are far from inert, so are teachers. They respond differently to the same stimuli because how the stimuli are perceived, indeed, whether they are in fact stimulant, depends as much on the characteristics of the student as it does on the objective characteristics of the stimuli themselves, end quote. It's a really important quote to kind of unpack. So think about like what you went into. If you are a computer science educator, what made you interested in computer science? And why did you go into this field as opposed to teaching another one? Like for myself, I went into music education and then after several years there, I switched over to computer science education. Why did I go into either of those subject areas as opposed to culinary arts education? What about for you? Why did you end up in computer science education as opposed to arts education? or language arts. It may be because the stimuli, the different experiences and lessons and projects you engaged with in one subject area was more meaningful than in others. Even though everybody might objectively receive the same kind of instruction, like if you have a computer or a video that demonstrates the exact same concept and you would create the exact same thing as somebody else, you're going to walk away from it with a different experience. I talk about this in some other episodes I'll include in the show notes at jaredoleary.com, but there are many different layers of curriculum. So like there's the intended curriculum that is what is designed by somebody like a curriculum developer. There is what is taught, the taught curriculum, that is how the teacher teaches that because it's often very different as a former curriculum developer and classroom teacher. I'm, I'm very aware of that. But then there's also what is uh, embodied or experienced by the students. And then there's like what is understood. There's like the null curriculum. Like there's many different layers of curriculum. But what a student experiences and walks away with and kind of embodies and takes away from a particular experience is going to be completely different than the person next to them, most likely. While one student might walk away from a lesson and go, wow, I really like abstraction in computer science. Another student might walk away going, wow, that was a really funny looking picture on page four. We don't actually know what students are going to think and what they're going to walk away with when it comes to an educational experience. Because again, they are not inert objects, but the behavioral objectives kind of treat them as though they're all going to do the same thing. And so Eisner points out that, quote, one major problem I see in the admonition to teachers and curriculum planner to specify their aims in behavioral terms is that the limitations of such objectives are seldom acknowledged. They are offered as though one were not really professionally competent without a list of objectives that one could pull out of for each set of curriculum activities formulated, end quote. It's from page 98. 
A little bit further down, Eisner goes on to clarify, look, I'm not saying we shouldn't have educational aims or objectives, but I'm just saying that, quote, one should not feel compelled to abandon educational aims that cannot be reduced to measurable forms of predicted performance, end quote. And that right there is kind of like the main crux of this particular chapter and goes against what a lot of people discuss when it comes to education, except for people on this particular podcast, because I like to unpack papers and interview guests who do talk about interest-based learning that might not have anything to do with a very specific and generalizable learning outcome that is going to be applied to all students. So I'll include a link in the show notes to interest-driven learning podcast episodes that I highly recommend checking out. So Elliot goes on to further eviscerate the behavioral objectives and says that we often focus on very simple things that can be described or observed, but that kind of does not get at the subtleties of what it means to be a human or to even have discursive language. Here's a quote from page 98, quote, For much of our experience, discursive language performs rather well. But for the subtleties of human experiences, for our knowledge of human feeling, for modes of conception, and understanding that are qualitative, discourse falls far short. How many words would it take to describe insight, perceptivity, integrity, self-esteem? How would one describe how water tastes? How would one describe the qualities of a late Beethoven quartet in precise, unambiguous, measurable terms. The point here is not an effort to inject the mystical into educational planning, but rather to avoid reductionist thinking that impoverishes our view of what is possible. To expect all of our educational aspirations to be either verbally describable or measurable is to expect too little." End quote. The next problem with some behavioral objectives is that there's often a judging going on as to whether or not somebody has achieved an objective or to what degree, and this can create a problem as well. Now, we might come up with some objectives like student will be able to write five lines of code, or a student will be able to write a for loop that has only four lines of code, or a student will be able to make a sprite navigate through a maze using only five blocks. I don't know. These are all common objectives that are used in computer science education. Here's some questions from Eisner on page 99. Quote, but what about the rhetorical force of a student's essay? What about the aesthetic quality of her painting? What about the cogency of his verbal argument? What about her intellectual style? The way she interprets the evidence in a science experiment? The way in which historical materials is analyzed? Are these subject to standards? I think not. But to say that such qualities cannot be measured by students, a little bit further down, how much weight does one give to insight and how much to logical argument? How does one compare this essay or this statement or this project or this painting to the one or ones the student did before? Judgments about such qualities are not will of the wisp, cavalier, irresponsible conclusions. They are complex appraisals that use an extraordinarily wide range of knowledge to arrive at what, on balance, is a warranted human judgment. The multiple choice test is simply not adequate for everything." End quote. Ooh, dropping the mic right there. It's such an important thing to consider. And now with like chat GPT and other AI generation platforms and whatnot being used to like cheat on tests. I'm really curious what Eisner would say about all of this, but that's a whole nother topic. Maybe we'll invite somebody on who's kind of an expert in that. But Eisner has a third critique of behavioral objectives and basically says that there is kind of like a pre-specification of what students will be able to do. And that kind of thinking is guided specifically by Western technology and processes or systems. So that may or may not align with different ontologies or axiologies. So different ways of being or different values that different students might have if they come from different cultures. But Eisner points out that life in the classroom is not always linear or neat and says on page 100, quote, 
Many of our most productive activities take the form of exploration or play. In such activities, the task is not one of arriving at a performed objective, but rather to act, often with a sense of abandon, wonder, curiosity. Out of such activity, rules may be formed and objectives may be created, end quote. Now, when I was in the classroom, I had it so that the students could explore and create whatever projects they wanted. So there are several programming languages that students could pick from. Like one of them specifically focused on coding music, another one focused on art and animation, another one allowed them to make games and stories, and another one uh, and it was like great for making apps. And this was a variety of different types of apps for like iPads, iPhones, etc. A student could start on a language or a project and then they could abandon it at any point that they wanted to. I often ask them to, hey, spend maybe a full day on it or a full week of class work on it. And then if you decide, nah, you don't like it, then cool, you can switch to something else. How many times have you as an adult worked on some kind of a project? Like, oh, I'm gonna do this painting of, I don't know, my dog. And you get halfway through it and you realize you're not quite the Van Gogh you thought you were. Or you're like, mm, nah, you know what? I'm not really interested in this. I'm gonna put this on pause or maybe not even resume it ever. Instead, I'm gonna do this other thing that grabs my attention. But in classroom context, it's usually positioned as, well, once you start something, you have to finish it. And when you start something, you have to have the end goal in mind. And that's something that I didn't really like. Oftentimes, students would come into my class and be like, I wanna make something. Okay, what do you wanna make? What are you interested in? And they'd be like, well, I'm interested in sports. Okay, well, spend some time thinking about what you're interested in in sports and maybe what you want to create. So then they start creating something relating to sports that they think is of interest to them. But as they're working on it, they go, oh, you know what? I actually like learned this like little thing that I can do that's kind of tangentially related to this. I want to head in this other completely different direction. And that is completely okay. That happens to myself in real life all the time. Like yesterday, I was working on something for the content creation that I do. And then I was like, oh, you know what? I don't wanna work on this other thing. And then I shifted course. But if I had some kind of behavioral objective, it would have been a failure because I did not complete the thing that I had started. But in reality, it was a success because I completed something else that I needed to get done. But going back to the core idea, like even a layer deeper than just completing things, but the idea of being able to explore and to play this is something that we've talked about in interviews like with Mitch Resnick, so many of the other guests in Unpacking Scholarship episodes, and especially the Rhizomatic Learning podcast, like the Fostering Intersectional Identities Through Rhizomatic Learning, which is episode 150, and then episode 75 titled Rhizomatic Learning with Katherine Bornhurst, John Stapleton, and Katie Henry. I'll include links to all those in the show notes. But in those episodes, we talk about how you don't have to have a linear path. In fact, you don't even have to have a predetermined path. Students can actually come up with them. That's a novel idea in educational context. In Instead of top-down educators saying, hey, student, we are the knowing person. You are going to learn this thing that we have determined for you. Instead, you could start with, hey, student, within this domain, like computer science, what is it that you actually want to learn? What kind of projects could you create or things might you explore? Or how might you ex express yourself through computer science? Or how might you investigate your interests in computer science? But I won't rant on that too much more because uh, we talk about it more in other episodes. Check this out in the show notes at jaredoleary.com or by going to the description in wherever you're listening to this on right now. Now, here's a really interesting way of kind of thinking about this shift in approach. So this is a quote from page 100 and it is quoting Harold Rosenberg. Quote, at a certain moment, the canvas began to appear to one American painter after another as an arena in which to act, rather than as a space in which to reproduce, redesign, analyze, or express an object, actual or imagined. What was to go on the canvas was not a picture, but an event. The painter no longer approached his easel with an image in his mind. He went up to it with material in front of him. The image would be the result of this encounter, end quote. 
So if we think of a lot of like artwork, so like in the Renaissance, it may have been, I'm going to paint this, I don't know, basket of fruit. But in a lot of contemporary forms of creating art, a artist might go up to a canvas, have the materials like paint supplies or whatever, and then just kind of explore how they might create. Whether it's, I'm not gonna use brushes today, I'm just gonna use my forearms and paint with that, or I'm going to drop some paint onto the canvas and kind of see what happens and then use that as inspiration for other things that I'm going to do. These are all approaches to creating artwork that did not have an end goal in mind other than I'm going to explore a process. So a little bit further down in the next section titled Problem-Based Objectives and Expressive Outcomes, Eisner poses two other alternatives to behavioral objectives. So thinking more broadly, Eisner suggests, well, another way, and this one might really resonate with computer science educators, but another way is problem-solving objectives. But it's very different than how many people talk about problem solving in computer science. So here's a quote from page 101. Quote, in the problem solving objective, the students formulate or are given a problem to solve, say, to find out how deterrence to smoking might be more effective, or how to design a paper structure that will hold two bricks 16 inches above a table, or how the variety and quality of food served in the school cafeteria could be increased within the existing budget. In each of these examples, the problem is posed and the criteria that need to be achieved to resolve the problem are fairly clear, but the forms of its solution are virtually infinite." End quote. That is a very important distinction there, as opposed to what is typically taught in like puzzle-based platforms, where there is one correct solution to be able to solve a particular problem. This is instead saying, hey, Broadly speaking, we have this problem and there are an infinite number of ways that we can kind of solve this particular problem. This gets at like what Wiggins and McTighe talks about in their understanding by design framework of like a big idea or an essential question. It is not a specific question, but it is a question that could be explored through many different perspectives and many different solutions to a particular problem. And this does relate to some of the computer science standards like CSTA's national standards. So here's a quote from page 101. Quote, the point is that the shapes of the solutions, the forms they take are highly variable. Alternative solutions to problem solving objectives could be discussed in class so that the students could begin to appreciate the practical costs, end quote. Now think of that in relation to like some of the algorithms and programming standards where you are to compare or contrast like multiple algorithms. So if we have a problem and the, the students come up with different algorithms to solve that particular problem, cool. Let's put them up both up on the board and let's talk about how they are similar and different. Which one works for different scenarios and which one's better in what ways or worse in what ways and why? But that kind of an idea of comparing and understanding could be done not just at the algorithmic level, but at the broader level of solutions to problems. Not just like comparing line by line, how is this for loop used compared to a while loop, but instead thinking of what kind of thought went into the solution of the problem. So instead of focusing on syntax, we focus on the thought that went behind the project or solution to a problem. And Eisner relates this to like engineers and architects. There are many different ways that an engineer might construct a bridge or that an architect might create a building. Many different floor plans that can be used, many different materials that can be used. All of these will have different kind of impacts. And what the engineers and the architects know in advance are the problems, not necessarily the solutions. What might be considered an appropriate solution might not 
not be understood until midway through or even towards the end of work on a particular problem. If you're constructing a bridge and you had some assumptions going into mind and you find out, well, that uh, water is not as solid as we think. We need to construct something to stabilize some of the pillars. Or an architect will draw up a floor plan and bring it to the client and the client might go, yeah, we like this, but what if you could make it an open floor concept? I've been watching HDTV. And they go back to the drawing board and they come up with a new potential solution to that new context that is provided. But then we relate this to scientists and Eisner points out that scientists are often the ones who are actually coming up with the problems that they're going to investigate. And that gets back to what I was just talking about with rhizomatic learning. So instead of teachers coming into a context and saying to a student, hey, we have a problem, you, the student, are going to solve this. Instead, we can say, hey, student, what kind of problems might you solve? What kind of questions do you have? Where might you explore? This is a very different approach that relates to the rhizomatic approach that's discussed in many other podcast episodes on this podcast. And again, I include links to those in the show notes. This approach, instead of a behavioral objective, quote, places a premium on cognitive flexibility, on intellectual exploration, on the higher mental processes, end quote. It's from page 103. But Eisner has a third approach, a third approach to educational aims. And so rather than calling them an expressive objective, Eisner prefers to use the term expressive outcomes and kind of distinguishes between the two on page 103. Quote, outcomes are essentially what one ends up with, intended or not. After some form of engagement, expressive outcomes are the consequences of curriculum activities that are intentionally planned to provide a fertile field for personal purposing and experience, end quote. So again, this had a profound impact on my approach to the classroom, which I talk about in episode 89 titled Applications of Affinity Space Characteristics in Computer Science Education. But rather than designing a lesson that was carefully constructed to guide students through a series of tasks that minimize cognitive load, I instead created a space in which students could freely explore things that they were interested in. And then I facilitated that one-on-one -on -one rather than directing everyone through the exact same thing. Because again, going back to what we talked about earlier, not everyone is gonna walk away from the exact same experience with the same understanding or same takeaway. Some students might walk away going, I now better understand what a for loop is, while other students will walk away going, I really don't like computer science. And that's unfortunate. If we instead flip it so that we start with, what are you interested in? How can we explore that interest through computer science? Then students might be more interested in the subject actually being taught. And this is for any subject area. I might've paid more attention in my other classes if I found why it was relevant for me to know what a matrix was in pre-calc. I could solve them. I don't know why I needed to know how to solve them. If I could find a way to make it relevant to my own life, then great maybe I would have paid more attention. Here's a quote from page 104. Quote, I believe that it is perfectly appropriate for teachers and others involved in curriculum development to plan activities that have no explicit or precise objectives. In an age of accountability, this sounds like heresy. Yet surely there must be room in school for activities that promise to be fruitful, even though the teacher might not be able to say what specifically the students will learn or experience. Parents do this all the time. The trip to the zoo, weekend spent camping in the woods, the bicycle ride after dinner. No specific objective or problems are posed prior to setting out on such activities. Yet we feel that they will be enjoyable and that some good will come from them. Curriculum planning and schooling in general need not always be single-minded in their pursuits, forever focusing on objectives that are by definition always out of reach. Purposes need not precede activities. They can be formulated in the process of action itself, end quote. Now there is a figure, figure two. And so in this figure, it talks about how Behavioral objectives leads to the behavioral activity. Problem-solving objectives leads to a problem-solving activity. But with expressive outcomes, it's actually flipped the direction. 
So the expressive activity leads to an expressive outcome. So rather than starting with the end in mind, with the outcome in mind, it starts with the activity or the experience. Whether or not you actually have a behavioral objective planned in advance, the actual outcome is not gonna be what you think it is. Even if a student can demonstrate understanding of something like, successfully demonstrate how to use a for loop inside of a very specific program, great. That's not the only outcome that comes out of this. We have to acknowledge that students are gonna walk away from this with many different understandings of that particular lesson or experience. It might relate to what they learn, and that might be like a computer science concept or practice, and it might also be that they don't like computer science or that they do like computer science. In Hammer at Home, if we focus on those things that students want to explore, the concepts and the practices will fall in line because as they explore their interests, they're gonna have to learn these concepts and practices to be able to create what they want. But if we start focusing on the rote little things like what is recursion, etc., and we don't actually get to the application of understanding in a meaningful way until a capstone project at the very end, we might lose students along the way. Like as somebody who went through school of music, I can say that many musicians get burned out because they don't actually get to perform the things that they enjoy. They did in high school, most likely. They were able to pick their solos for solo and ensemble or, or their audition repertoire to get into a school of music. But then when they get into a school of music, the way that it's often done is a professor will assign you a piece to learn that is supposed to push you in a new direction. But if you don't like that piece of music, you might spend months or semesters or years working on something you actually don't enjoy playing. And so many musicians get so burned out because they're no longer playing music that they enjoy and instead are just focusing on the rote mechanics to improve their musicianship and expressiveness in a way that is no longer meaningful to that individual. So they walk away from it going, I don't like music anymore. This happened to myself. I took quite some time off from making music or practicing it. And this can happen in education as well. If you are forced to focus on things that you are not interested in, in a subject area, it's gonna go in one ear and go out the other one as soon as you are done applying that understanding. But if we instead focus on how to explore these concepts and practices in ways that are meaningful to that individual, then maybe, just maybe, they'll actually want to continue to do it after the close of the classroom. But you might only get one semester or one quarter or maybe even an entire year to do that. And because of that, you might feel very constrained with how much you're supposed to teach in that period of time. But if you cram everything into the most effective and efficient way possible in your quarter or semester or whatever, and you hit all of those objectives, great. But the outcome is that student will never want to engage in computer science again. In the long run, was that worth it? I would argue it does more harm than good. Because instead of learning how to use computer science in everyday life and cultivating a desire to continue to use it at the close of that particular course, instead if a student walks away from it understanding these concepts and practices, but doesn't want to ever engage in it again, then I think we failed them. But that's my own biased opinion. Now there's an interesting thing that Eisner points out at the bottom of page 104, top of page 105. So Eisner talks about Tyler rationale, which is something that I'd recommend taking a look at if you're unfamiliar with the Tyler rationale it kind of has set the course for how most schooling and curricula is done. And this was from the like mid 1900s. But the way that Tyler discussed objectives was that they were educational objectives. But this was later changed to instructional objective and then eventually changed to behavioral objective and more recently to performance objective. But Iser points out that quote, behavioral or performance objectives may or may not be educational. The normative aspect of education no longer is a part of them. One can have a behavioral objective that aims at creating racists or paranoids. 
Such an aim could hardly be regarded as educational, unless, of course, racism and paranoia were a part of one's conception of education. End quote. It's from page 105. So if we focus on the things that students do, we can often lose sight of what they are actually learning from that. So for example, I often see like with uh, scratch rubrics and whatnot, it's like you might get one point for one sprite, three points for three sprites, and five points if you include five sprites in your projects. But what are they actually learning from that? And how does that relate to what they want to create? Maybe they're creating a monologue or a single player game with one character exploring a deserted planet. Or maybe they're creating a conversation between friends. Each one of those projects may lend itself to more or less sprites. But how does the number of sprites actually relate to what students are going to learn? Maybe if they're using broadcasting messages from one sprite to another, then maybe that's an important thing to consider. But is the focus on the number of sprites or is the focus on the application of understanding using broadcast blocks? I'd argue it's the second one and not the first one. So we've really got to focus on not just what students will do or demonstrate, but what they will learn through that demonstration of understanding. But a little bit further down, Eisner asks the questions, well, how uh, specific should these objectives be? If we are gonna have like expressive outcomes or problem-based or behavioral objectives, how specific should they be? And so Eisner does some quick math and basically says that if we start adding in more and more objectives for each one of the lessons across the course of a week, we might have hundreds of objectives that students are going to be engaging in. But rather than having teachers focus on all of those objectives for all of the different standards in all of the different subject areas they might teach, Eisner instead recommends focusing on other areas because teachers deal with far more than just the standards and the objectives that are written on the board at the front of the classroom. Quote, these objectives are not found in lists. They are not written. Although some school districts have compiled such lists of objectives in notebooks the size of the New York City telephone directory. These objectives are a part of the personal and psychological repertoire that teachers draw on each day when working with students. End quote. It's from page 106. And a little bit further down on 106 and into 107. Quote, consider for a moment the range of problems, content, context, and individuals with which a teacher must deal. Not only must there be some sense of purpose or direction to the activities in which teachers are engaged, but also the priorities among those projects must be considered, altered, or sustained. When does a teacher, for the time being, wisely forget about the goal of helping a student learn to spell a set of words correctly or learn how to punctuate an adverbial clause and instead attend to other aims, aims that are also a part of his or her aspirations for the student but not an explicit part of that particular segment of the curriculum? When does a teacher choose to make educational capital out of unexpected opportunities in the classroom, an offhand remark by a student or a keen insight by another, and in so doing, depart from his or her previously specified objective? All of these happen in classrooms, at least those that are not rigidly tied to a set of single-minded aims. In particular, elementary classrooms often acquire their own tempo. The students become immersed in what was to be a casual short-term project. And teachers often yield to such tempo, recognizing the need for an organic as contrasted to a mechanical treatment of time. Thus, from one point of view, 845 objectives are far more than any teacher can reasonably be expected to focus on. 420 would be equally difficult. Yet at the same time, teachers operate with thousands of objectives in the form of their aspirations for the student with whom they work. The major difference is that their latter aims are implicit and contextual rather than explicit and prepared prior to the specific context in which they are to teach, end quote. Now, this is a really, really, really important thing to consider. There is a lot of discussion going on because of generative AI and just AI in general. And in this discussion, some people are 
hypothesizing that there's not going to be a need for teachers in the future, that we're just going to have AI and programs and whatnot make it so that we can have custom experiences for students so that they can learn how to solve problems. And if they're engaging in a problem that's difficult, it will identify and find the best solution, yada, yada, yada. And if again, we treat students as inert objects, sure, that approach works great. But if we recognize that students are human beings, we might come to a different conclusion. Maybe, just maybe, AI is not the solution to education. But that's my own perspective, and you can disagree with me on this podcast. There's a contact me button on my website, jaredaleary.com. I'd love to have you on as a guest. But there is a book by Audrey Waters that is titled Teaching Machines, The History of Personalized Learning. I recommend taking a look at that. This has actually gone on for decades and decades. It's a really interesting concept to consider. Speaking of concepts to consider, at the end of these unpacking scholarship episodes, I'd like to talk about some lingering questions or thoughts that I have. So one question that I might ask is, what does your school's curriculum focus on? Does it focus on behavioral objectives, problem-based objectives, or expressive outcomes? And how would you balance the three types in your classroom? If you could wave a magic wand and have the ideal kind of setup, would you lean towards one over another? Would you have 33.3333 with a vinculum percent for each of them? Or when do or don't we need to balance these three types of objectives? Maybe we could have it so that all of them are problem-based objectives or all of them are expressive outcomes. There's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach to it, but certainly that is how many people talk about education. So think about your context, who you are working with, what the goals of not just your district are, or your curriculum is, but of the students and the communities that you work with, and consider them in relation to behavioral, problem-based objectives, and expressive outcomes. But then another thing we might consider is in what ways do or don't standardized educational objectives align with equity-based pedagogies? Again, we've talked about rhizomatic learning and interest-driven learning, etc. but those are very different approaches to what is typically done from a pedagogical standpoint. Is what is typically done more equity-based or are the things that I've talked about more equity-based? Your answer to that might differ from mine. And that's something that as a field we should discuss, in my opinion. But another broader question that I have is, is there a correlation between politicians with industry, business, or military backgrounds and voting for performance-based objectives in classrooms? We often have these outsiders who are politicians, lawmakers, etc., who come into the educational space by an outsider imposing their own perspectives onto teaching and learning. While well-intentioned, we get this very industrial approach to education as a system that treats students, again, as inert objects. This is problematic for so many reasons, discussed in this chapter that was unpacked in this episode, as well as in some of the episodes that are talking about social and emotional learning, which I'll link to in the show notes at jaredoleary.com. I hope this episode helps you reconsider or think through some of the hegemonic influences or the structures of structures in the educational system, but also from a more granular level, questioning what kind of objectives am I writing on the board and are those actually useful? Or how might I reframe them to be customized and more interesting to the kids that I work with. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing this on social media or with a friend or family member. Again, you can find all the show notes at jaredaleary.com where there are hundreds if not thousands of free computer science education and right now over 1,300 hours of free drumming content and a bunch of gaming content as well because I'm a nerd. But don't worry, it's neatly organized so you don't have to see any of the gaming content if you don't want to. Stay tuned next week for another episode. Until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.